Uh, today, I really want to kind of piggyback on last week because there were some things I, I, I wanted to say last week that I couldn't get to just because of time. And so uh, I t- I'm taking this opportunity today to kind of maybe finish up that message and kind of expand on it a little more too. We talked about Thomas and um, the, the series is called Making an Appearance and we, how Jesus appeared to Thomas and how he went through this, these phases of uh, stages of faith in his life. And so I'm going to talk a little bit more about it today. In fact, I'm going to jump right in. I want to jump into my text verse. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would, please. Uh, we like to stand here in honor of God's word as we read it together. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can look on the screen behind me as well and follow along. Uh, this is the Apostle Paul's second letter to his protege, Timothy. And um, he wrote this from a Roman prison cell. Chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Uh, it's a little lengthy, so stay with me here. It says, So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from the beginning before, or before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. Thank the Lord. And now he has made all of us, all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That's why I am here suffering in prison. But I am not ashamed of it, for I know. Everyone say, for I know. For I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Thank the Lord. Praise God. The title of my message today is simply, For I Know. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for being here with us today. Lord, we thank you that you go with us, that you go before us, and that you are in us. And God, we pray that these next few minutes would be all about you, Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to us in a greater way. God, I pray that my words would be your words, and anything I say that's not of you, Lord, that it would fall on deaf ears, but that what is of you, Lord, would transform our lives to make us more like you and give us greater knowledge of who you are and your character and what you've done for us. And Lord, let your name be the one that we are talking about this afternoon, tomorrow, and all week. And we pray it all in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated. So my message is called, For I Know. Do you, you know how there's things that we think we know in life and you don't really know if you know or believe it until it's tested? Uh, Pretty much every aspect of our faith, really, but even on a superficial level. Um, as I was preparing, as I was thinking of you know, things in my life that have, I used to believe that once it got tested, it changed. Uh, one of those things was when I was younger, I absolutely hated crab legs. I thought they were disgusting. I mean, you've ever seen a live crab walking in the ocean or on the beach? They're, they're gross. You know, their eyes are like poking out of their head and their legs are all weird and claws. And, and I thought, man, there's no way we're supposed to eat that. That's disgusting. And I would tell anybody that would listen. And then when I was about 20 years old, I went out with some friends out to eat one day. And a couple of the friends were girls, and, you know, as a guy, I got to try to impress them. And uh, everybody at the table ordered crab legs. And it came to me, and I said, well, I'm not going to be the dorky loser that gets fish. And so, (laughs) not that fish is bad. I order fish all the time. But it was a 20-year-old brain. What can I tell you? And so I ordered crab legs, too. And uh, I was nervous, but they came out, and I broke the first one and dipped the meat in some butter and took a bite. And that's where the love affair began. And it has never stopped. I've had a passionate 
uh, love for crab legs ever since then. And, uh, but it was something I believed wholeheartedly until I actually tried it. What do you know? You know? And I was a picky eater too, which I'm sure many of you were too. But uh, I've grown to like a lot of things that I thought I hated because I was willing to try them. And that's a superficial aspect, obviously, but it's also spiritual for us too that there are things about our faith that we think we believe and then when it's tested, we realize, well, maybe I don't believe that. Or maybe what I believed was wrong. And we have to know why we believe what we believe. I, I, I thought of one thing. Um, I grew up um, in, a, in a church that, that preached that uh, we were meant to be pacifists. As Christians, we should be passive. That, you know, we're not, Christians shouldn't participate in the military. And that we should just kind of uh, stand around and let other people do it, I guess. And I didn't really understand all of it, but I believed it. Because the Bible says, thou shall not kill. And so that was the, the teaching I had. That's what I believed in. And then around the same age, really early 20s, I went off to uh, Youth with a Mission and was working there. And, and I was actually in a school there. And I remember the teacher talking and talking through the Ten Commandments and got to the one about thou shalt not kill. And, and what I learned was that the translation there is really better in English for it to say thou shalt not murder. Because there's actually more words for, for kill than what we just have. And uh, basically that there is justified killing that happened all through the Bible and even today, obviously, and that we actually need Christians in the military to serve and be part of the culture of the military to help be salt and light in the military. And I will never forget that moment. I mean, it was like one of those times where just a light went on and I was angry and excited all at the same time. I was angry because what I believed was being challenged, but at the same time, I knew this was truth and it was completely revelatory for me and it completely changed my mind and my heart. And I realized what I believed wasn't really based on truth. It was based on just what somebody was telling me. And let me just say, uh, that wasn't just a few months ago. That was 30 years ago. And I could not be more excited about Christians in the military. How many of you know we need a Christian presence serving in our armed forces? Amen? Praise God. Yes. And I'm so proud that we have a church full of so many military that have served and, and continue to serve as well. And I'm thankful that that was something that was thwarted in my life, that was cast down. But the reality of it is that we need to know why we believe what we believe. We need to know what we believe, and we need to know why we believe that. And I want to talk to you about that today, about knowing. You notice in my text verse, Paul said, For I know the one in whom I trust. And I'm completely convinced. Some versions say uh, that I am determined to, to understand, that I am persuaded that he is able to keep all that I have entrusted to him until the day that he returns. And see, we live in a time where we really need to know what we believe. It's one thing to feel like crab legs are gross, and if that's you and you've never had them, I feel sorry for you, but that's superficial. But it's another thing to, to think we believe things and we are in a dangerous spot if we don't really know why we believe them, especially in a society today where literally almost everything is open to interpretation. Everything. I mean, and, and, it, and it, you see it infiltrating into the church, too. There's almost nothing today that is not open to interpretation or how you feel about it. Sexuality, gender, marriage, the unborn. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And many people are being swayed because they don't really know why they believe it. They've just been told that. And we live in a time where we have to know why we believe what we believe. Last week, I did talk about Thomas. He was the disciple that, if you know the story, you know that he was... Uh, very zealous for Jesus, and then when Jesus died, he, got, he, he was doubting, he didn't believe in him anymore, and then Jesus revealed himself to him, and then he walked into this place of assurance. And I talked about how we, we go through stages of faith in our life, where it starts where we're zealous, and doubt comes in at some point, and then if we walk through that doubt faithfully, we can actually get to a place of assurance. And I wanna, I wanna talk a little more about the assurance, about being persuaded, about being, to say, being able to say, 
for I know. I know the one in whom I trust. It's not just something I'm making up because somebody told me about him. I actually know him. And I know why I believe what I believe. Because if we're not at that place, we can be swayed by whatever comes our way. Whatever sounds good, whatever makes sense in the moment, whatever feeds our own insecurities, whatever helps us make, feel like uh, we feel better about ourselves, we can easily be swayed. Our faith has to be proven. You know how you don't really know if the roof of a house is any good when the sun is shining? You know, when the sun is out, unless the roof is in complete disrepair, you can't tell if this roof is waterproof and secure and if it's, if it's not leaking. How do you tell if a roof is leaking? When it rains. That's when you can actually tell if the roof is good, if the roof is waterproof, if it's functioning the way it's supposed to. In fact, you have to have water on it to actually be able to see. You can, you can have a roof, you can have a visual inspection of a roof, even by a very qualified insurance adjuster or roofer, and still could say, you know, looks pretty good, but it could still leak at some point. And your faith may look okay when the sun is shining. Your faith may look okay on Sunday morning because you're with a bunch of people that are agree, agree with you. you may, it may look okay because you're getting to express your faith in a safe place. But how does your faith look when the roof is leaking? When, when your roof of faith is being pummeled by constant downpours, how does your faith look? Because that's what your faith really is. When the sun is shining, your faith is just, you're just kind of basking in the glow of the sun. The roof is what reveals the leaks in our life. I mean, the rain is what reveals the leaks in our life that otherwise seem fine. And can I tell you today, church, we are in a time in our society where we're getting pummeled by rainstorms. And there's no sign of it stopping. There's no sign of it stopping. And not even societal stuff. We have stuff personally in our life that's raining. And your faith is being exposed for what it is during the rain. In fact, rain is not designed to keep us to stop. It's to, it's to get us to a place where we can, like Paul, say, for I know. See, the rain is what got Paul to that place. The rain in his life is what got him there. And it's, it's similar to Job. If you know the story of Job, you know that he was uh, one of the godliest men in the world at his time. He had a lot of wealth, a lot of kids, very happy, couldn't have been more blessed. And all of a sudden he loses almost all of it in a very, very short time. He loses his wealth, he loses his kids, and he even loses his own health in that time. But I love what he said. He said something very similar to Paul. In Job 19, in verse 25, he says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Job was convinced too. Job knew. And he had lost a lot. You might say, oh, that's not fair. Job got everything back and double what he lost. That's right, he did. But you know what? There are 42 chapters in the book of Job. And you know when he got everything back? Chapter 42. And this passage is out of chapter 19. This was in the midst of the pouring rain, church. In the midst of the rain, he knew that he knew that he knew. Now, does it mean he wasn't suffering? Does it mean he wasn't hurting? Does it mean he didn't want it all to go away? Of course not. But that is not, our circumstances don't determine who God is. And our circumstances don't have to determine whether or not we know who he is and what he's like. In fact, oftentimes our circumstances will actually bring us to that place where we can be convinced, where we can be persuaded that he is who he said he is. 
And we can get to that place that it's not going to come from ritual. It's not going to come from stumbling into it. And it's sure not going to come from crossing your fingers and just hoping that I get to that place at some point in my life. We have to be intentional. Which brings me to my first point today, which is that knowing comes from suffering more than from blessing. To know like Paul did, to know like Job did, to know like Jesus did, to know like Peter did, to know like his disciples did, to know like David did. I mean, countless. You can, it goes on and on and on. And I know a lot of you, you don't like to hear this. This is not, point number one here is not a feel-good point. But actually, if, when you look at it and you dig into it, it actually really is a feel-good point. Because the reality is we're all going to suffer. To know that my suffering actually can lead me to a place of knowing him in a greater way actually gives me purpose in my suffering. It gives me hope in my suffering. And the Bible is full of people who, had, who you saw that they actually got to a place where they knew because of their suffering. In fact, you can make an argument that the, the wealth and the blessings that come on this earth can actually be a challenge in our life to really knowing God. You know, Jesus is the one that said that it is harder for a rich man to enter the gates of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Jesus said that. It's all through the scripture. Jesus talked about it many times, but it's all over the place where we are warned not to put our faith in our wealth, in our stuff. Why is that? Because that's our nature. Even as a spirit-filled Christian follower of Jesus, it is still our nature to put our faith in our blessings, to put our trust in the stuff that we can see tangibly that helps us get our bills paid and gets us moving forward in our life. The tendency is to want to put your faith in that. And so that is why the suffering actually causes us to know him more oftentimes than even the blessings that come in our life. Now listen, I did not say that the only way to know him is through suffering. I said it's just more that way. Jesus himself learned obedience through suffering. Hebrews 5 tells us that though he was the son, he still had to learn obedience through his suffering. You know, I've said it many times. I'm not the one that came up with it, I'm sure. But something the Lord has shown me is that we have to be reminded that Jesus did not come to this earth, live a sinless life, die on a cross, rise from the dead, and ascend back to heaven to end all suffering on this earth. That's not why he did it. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar to understand that or to know it or to even uh, uh, know how that can work. Because the reality is, if that's why Jesus came, we know that he failed miserably. If he came to end all suffering on the earth, he failed miserably because there is a ton of suffering on this earth. It is everywhere. And we have some of the best uh, circumstances here in this country that you could have in all the world, yet we still even see it here, but you see it all over the world. There are Christians suffering all over the world. Every, most of us in this room, most of us listening online, we are dealing with some kind of suffering right now. So if Jesus came to end suffering on this earth, man, he didn't do a very good job. But that's not why he came. He didn't come to end suffering on the earth. He came to make sure that our suffering wasn't without purpose that it did have meaning to it, that it can actually draw us to him. Now, he did come to end suffering for those that love him and know him, but it's not for here, it's for later. Which, by the way, that's gonna be really cool. But that's not here. Now, he can, he can alleviate and he can deliver us from suffering at times. Can he heal us here on the earth? Can he do things to, to bring us into places of, of comfort and peace? Of course he can. 
And he does it all the time. But that's not the primary focus of who he is or even why he came to this earth. And there's this dynamic that our, our suffering can actually draw us to him. But we need to know this, church, especially you young people that are just getting started in your faith. You need to know that like, the fact that sometimes you, you may not get the relief that you're looking for, it's not because God's not able, it's not because he doesn't care, it's not because he's ignoring you. It's to, make, it's to get you to that place that Paul was at that said, for I know. For I know. And for whatever reason, there's an aspect, I mean, it sounds counterintuitive that suffering reveals God to us, but that's the way it works. It, it, it has a tendency, a potential to draw us to him. Because even in my own life, I've experienced that. When things are going really well, sometimes the first thing to go for me can be like, okay, God, yeah, I'm good. You know, I'll, I'll let you know when I need you again. But man, when something bad happens in my life, my face is immediately turned to God. God, help! Because <laughs> we need him. That's just human psyche. And so we don't have to resent when things in our life aren't perfect. I can tell you that him, him being the healer doesn't mean that everything on earth is going to be taken care of all the time. You know, I've shared before multiple times that I, I, I get migraines sometimes. I don't get them as bad as some people, but I definitely deal with them. Um, it's something that my grandmother had, and she passed it on to my mother, who passed it on to me. It's not one of the inheritances that you actually want, but, uh, but I did get it. And you know what? I have been prayed for more times than I can even begin to count. I've prayed for my, I've laid hands on myself so many times. And I've had people pray for me. I've had people anoint me. I've had words spoken over me. I've had everything you could ever imagine. And yet I still get them. And I hate them. And they can be debilitating at times. And I've asked God to take them. I've asked God to, to show me. Or to, to, if there's anything I need to do. I mean, I've done everything. I've bartered. I've done everything I know to do. And let me tell you something. Him having not, that healing not being manifested in my body up to this point in my life has not hurt my stance on him being my healer at all. In fact, if anything, it's reassured me of who he is. And I know you might think that sounds crazy. How could he be your healer if he hasn't healed you? I can tell you because I know he's my healer because I know exactly what the word says because I've allowed this, this situation in my life to draw me to him. It's caused me to even search the scriptures to look at him and who he is and what that means for me in my life. And when I look at him and I see, I see like Paul, for example, who in the middle of his ministry, they were taking hankies and aprons and he would just touch them and they would take those and take them to people that he couldn't get to and put them on sick people and the sick people would get healed. Like he was, the anointing was so powerful on him, literally a piece of cloth that he touched could heal someone. Yet in his letter to Timothy, he talks about one of his good friends that he had to leave where he was and he left him sick. Tremethus or something, I can't pronounce his name, but a friend of his that he says, I left him back there sick. A friend of his that he was with, he couldn't heal him, but a, a, a snot rag could heal somebody that, when Paul wasn't even there. Now, can you make sense of that? I sure can't, not fully. But I know that that doesn't mean that God's not a healer just because he had to leave somebody else sick. God is sovereign. He's over all. He's above all. And I can trust him in all of it. And I'm thankful that every time I've ever got a migraine, he's healed me from it because I don't still have one. So I'll take that. Now, I want it to be different, but that doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change how powerful he is. He doesn't change his ability or even the fact that he cares about it. Serving God is not a formula. It's not a formula. It's a commitment to him. It's giving him everything. It's trusting him even when you're in a Roman prison cell knowing that you're about to go and be executed. 
which is exactly where Paul was when he wrote my text verse. And he says, for I know the one in whom I trust. I know him. It wasn't because this whole situation was fixed. It wasn't like he saw Jesus coming down the hill and he knew Jesus was going to bust him out of jail. It's because he knew him. And he knew him more through his suffering than he even knew him in his blessings in his life. I talked last week about doubt and how doubt can be something that can really challenge us in our faith, that we all deal with that at some point, at some time in our, in our journey of faith. Well, what is the biggest catalyst of doubt in our life? Typically, it's going to be suffering. It's when we suffer and we don't see God doing what we want him to do. That is when usually when doubt can creep into our life, right? Doubt is what, uh, or suffering is what can bring doubt into our life. Like we don't struggle with doubt. We don't struggle wondering if God is our provider when we just got a raise that we didn't deserve. We're rejoicing in it, right? We don't struggle with, with doubt if, of God being our healer. If, you, if you've been diagnosed with cancer, you had somebody pray over you and you went back to the doctor and got a scan and the doctor comes in and says the greatest words in all the Christian faith, I can't understand it, but I don't see anything. Nothing better as a Christian hearing a guy in a white coat say, I don't understand it, but it's not there anymore. That's pretty powerful, right? In those moments, we're not thinking, man, I wonder if God's my healer. You know, we're, we're rejoicing in it. The doubt comes in when we're suffering, when it doesn't happen the way we want to. And Paul did a lot of suffering. And he didn't know God the way he talked about because of everything being fixed. In fact, he gives us just a little list of some of the suffering he went through in his first letter or second letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read these verses starting in 24. Look what it says. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. Pretty much covered it all. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And then to cap it all off, he says, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. This is the list of things Paul went through in his life. Yet he can say, I know. I know the one in whom I trust. Now, he actually goes on a couple verses later in this passage in Corinthians where he says that if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in my weakness. Now, why is he going to boast in his weakness? Is he crazy? No, he's not crazy. He's boasting in his weakness because he knows it's that his weakness is what got him into those situations that he was in, which is where God was really revealed in his life, where he really learned to know God. See, he understood and knew that God's biggest plan for Paul, the will of God for Paul was not about just all these missionary journeys. The will of God for Paul was for him to know God. And that's the will of God for all of us. More than anything else in our life, it is for us to be able to say, for I know. That's God's will for every one of you. That you could say, for I know, and you would believe it and know it in your heart and have uh, been persuaded and assured that he is who he says he is. But you know, not all of our suffering is even physical. Some of our suffering is psychological. Some of it's emotional. Some of it's relational. It reminds me of Abraham. And, uh, you know, Abraham was promised that he was going to have a child in his, in his later years, and he finally does. This child is going to be the child of the promise that that the, the, the nation of Israel basically was going to come from this. And he finally has this child, Isaac. 
And God comes to him one day and he says, hey, I want you to take your only son, that one you love so much, and take him up to the mountain and kill him. Sacrifice him to me. And if you know the story, you know Abraham got up the next morning and he took him up there and he went to sacrifice him, tied him up, bound him, and got the knife and was reared back ready to do it and the angel stopped him. Now, if you don't think that Abraham was going through some psychological and some emotional suffering from that, day, that time when God told him to do it until that next day when he actually was going to do it, then you don't know anything about anything because <laughs> he was suffering. I can promise you that. Yet here's what God said to him in Genesis 22:12. 12. God is saying, now I know. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Now I know. God wants us to know. Now we know that God knows everything, but God wanted Abraham to know in that too, that he could trust him and that he was the God that he said he was. And it comes oftentimes through suffering. I also want to show you today that to know is not to know at all. To know is not to know at all. This is where many of us get tripped up. We think we really, uh, to, to have the assurance to be able to say like Paul did, that I am persuaded that he is able to keep all that that I've entrusted to him, that we have to have, uh, we have to be com completely convinced with no doubt, that we have to be 100% convinced. I hear it all the time that, that we, we, people want more assurance. I want to see from God. I want a burning bush experience. I want to see Jesus walk on water. I want all these things, which is funny because all those people that saw all those things still dealt with a lot of doubt with a lot of questioning, with a lot of struggles. It's not about having complete assurance, but the thing is, we get to this place where we think we wanna have complete assurance because we believe other people have it. We believe that the disciples had it. We believe the people in our church even had it. That when we hear them talk, they talk so positively that I think, man, that person's really convinced and they have no doubt. Oftentimes, we, we compare our uh, the reality of our faith with our perceived reality of other people's faith. And it causes us to feel like, well, I want that assurance. I want to be able to have that solidarity. I want to be completely convinced, completely persuaded. But you know, there's nothing else in life where we get 100% certainty in anything, but we really, really feel like we need it in our faith. There's nothing in life that's 100% certain. Nothing at all. I'm not 100% sure that when I get in my car today, to go home that I'm gonna make it home without getting in a fiery car crash. Yet guess what? I'm gonna get in my car today when I leave here and I'm gonna drive home probably carelessly. <laughs> kind of on cruise control, you know? I'm not gonna be on my phone, kids. I won't do that, but I might be a little careless. And, and when I go eat lunch today, I'm not 100% convinced that what I eat is not gonna make me violently ill. Yet guess what? I'm gonna eat lunch today. You better believe it. I'm not convinced that the money that I put in an IRA every week to help build up a retirement for me one day, that that money's even gonna be there when I retire. I'm not 100% convinced of that. You shouldn't be either. It could be gone tomorrow. Yet guess what? I put money in it every single week. I'm playing the odds, right? I'm not convinced of any of that, but for some reason we want this complete assurance in our faith to be able to trust in God. That we want to be able to know that we know that we know that we know so much that no one could ever convince me otherwise. No one could talk me out of it. That nothing could ever happen that could make it look like maybe what I believe isn't true. But the reality is that's not even possible. It's not there. It's not really even something that we're even promised in our life. 
The Apostle Paul, the same Paul, in his first letter to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 13, we don't preach on this passage very much, but it's actually very interesting. In verse 12, he says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Interesting, because he said in his letter to Timothy, for I know, but he's saying here, I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. He's talking about when he's actually with Jesus. So he's saying here that we, what we see now is a poor reflection as in a mirror. And you might think, well, I can see a good reflection in a mirror. Mirrors are crystal clear. They weren't when Paul wrote this. They weren't very clear at all. You couldn't see those tiny little hairs to pluck them. You just kind of had to hope for the best. Start grabbing. So he's telling us here that we don't get a full view of what Jesus and what God is like in our finite minds while we're on this earth. We only know in part because God wants us to have faith. He doesn't even want us to know everything. He wants us to have to walk in faith. He wants to meet us in that place of faith. And can I tell you, I had a great revelation not too long ago about all of this because I'm, I'm like all of you where I, there's times I'm just like, Lord, I, just, I wish I just knew. I wish I knew the answers to all the questions and how you function and how great you are and the vastness of your beauty and, and you're the king of the universe and why do I only get a tiny little glimpse of it? It was revealed to me basically that for me to fully understand everything about God, that means God can only be as big as my brain. And I can tell you guys, you don't want God to be as big as my brain. Because my brain ain't that big. This is mostly skull, it's really thick. <laughs> and so the fact that I don't understand everything is actually incredibly encouraging to me. That means he's way bigger than my brain. He's way bigger than anything that I could ever comprehend. That's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. That means his, his knowledge is, is so vast that there's no way. I mean, the, what I know of him is a, literally a drop of water in the ocean. And that's a good thing. The fact that I don't understand everything doesn't make it worse. It makes it better. Because that means he's greater than even I know. And I think I know a lot about God and how awesome he is. His awesomeness, if that's a word, is even way more than what I even know about how great he is. Praise God. That's really, really encouraging, and it can help us in those times where we really just feel like, oh, I just need to know. Like, I, I feel like if I knew more, I'd be able to say, for now I know. But that's not really what it's about. It's about trusting him. And frankly, if your heart's not in the right place, even if he shows himself to you, you're not going to know any more than you did. Your heart's got to be in the right place. We've got to be in a place where we really want him and him alone, and not just what he can do for us. It has to be in that way, I, I, the, uh, the Jews, you know, they hated Jesus and, and they said he they accused him of having a demon and being possessed by demons. And, and Jesus said, I'm not possessed by a demon. In fact, I only say what the Father tells me to say. And he said, basically, if you would listen to the words I say, you would never taste death. He says this in John 8. And uh, he wasn't meaning physical death. He was meaning spiritual death. But the Jews didn't understand it because their hearts were so hard and their necks were so stiff that they didn't understand so their response to him in John 8, 52 was very interesting because they're claiming they know too. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. They thought they knew something, but it was because their hearts were not at the place that they needed to be. And if you only want to know what you want to know, you're only going to see what you want to see. It really is that simple. And when you see more, you still won't know. So we've got to make sure our heart is in the right place. You know, when Jesus healed, 
healed a, a man on the Sabbath with a shriveled hand. And when we read that, you think, wow, how incredible must that have been to witness that? Yeah, the Pharisees witnessed it and they plotted how to kill him. Because their hearts were not in the right place. So it's not about knowing everything. It's about knowing him and trusting him. Okay, and third and finally, we can't know him, we can't know without knowing his character. You can't say you know in the one you trust if you don't know him, if you don't know his character, if you don't know who he is. If you, how, how do you know what he even does, how he functions, how he uh, responds, how, who he is if you don't know about him? If you want to know the best predictor of God's future character is looking back at his past character. If you want to know how God is going to be in the future and how, how he responds and how he functions and how he works, all you got to do is look back to see his character because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. He's the same. He is who he is. His character doesn't change. We can't understand it all, but we can see if we're in his word and we understand his word, we can know him and know who he is and how he functions. He gives us enough in his word to help us, to show us who he is and how he works. You see, knowing God gives us peace in our suffering. Knowing him is what gives us the peace in our suffering. In fact, one of the, one of the favorite verses in all the Bible that you'll hear quoted all the time, you'll hear, see it on bumper stickers and on, on stuff that's crocheted and, and all kinds of things, is Philippians 4 verse 7. It says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We love that verse, don't we? It's a beautiful verse. To know that he is the one that can give us peace that makes no sense. He gives us peace that goes against anything we could ever understand with our brains. He gives us peace beyond that in our life. And we love that verse and we can hang on to that verse. But if you don't know God, if you don't really know who he is and how he functions, you can look at that verse and just think, okay, good. Well, that's what I'm going to pray for. God, I pray you give me the peace that goes against all my understanding. Thank you, Lord. I'm claiming it. It's in the word. I'm believing it. In fact, I've even prayed for people just for that. But if you know your Bible, you know that the, the first word in that verse is and. That means it's not the beginning of the thought. So you have to go backwards to see what he's actually talking about here. How does that peace that transcends all understanding come in our life? Well, let's read the three verses prior to that. Verses four to six. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And then the peace of God, which goes against all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's very, very interesting how easy it is to take something and, and pull it out and want to make it part of what you want or, or what you're believing about God when it's really only a part of the reality. One of the biggest purposes we have in life is to rejoice in everything. And this verse, this passage is really about a response to suffering. He doesn't have to double command us to rejoice when things are going well. I don't need to be told two times in one sentence to rejoice in the Lord if everything's going perfect. Let me tell you, if Joy comes to me and says, hey, I'm taking you out for all you can eat crab legs tonight, nobody has to tell me to rejoice. I'm gonna be going, woohoo, let's go. And she doesn't eat crab legs, so she usually cracks them for me so I can just dip and eat. It is beautiful. <laughs> no one's having to tell me to rejoice about crab legs. 
but you might have to tell me to rejoice if I'm dealing with something that's making me anxious or if I have a migraine headache or if I'm suffering in some other way in my life, I might need to be told to rejoice. And if I really want the peace, then I've got to follow this. He gives us a bit of a formula. He says, if you want the peace, you got to rejoice in him always. Let your gentleness be evident. We could learn something from that. Some of us would have to get off social media if we're going to let our gentleness be evident to all. Gentleness, even on social media, church. Do not be anxious. So I can't be anxious. But in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests. Don't just come and tell them everything that's wrong. He says to do it with thanksgiving. The Bible tells us that we enter his gates with thanksgiving. If we're going to come into uh, the presence of the Lord, the first step through the gate is thanksgiving. Not a superficial, yeah, thanks God for who you are, yeah, 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 whatever. Here, now here's my list. But really coming in with a heart of thankfulness for him. And when we do that, church, then the peace of God can come into our life. That supernatural peace that makes no sense. Supernatural peace. That's his heart for us. That is exactly what he wants for us. That we would actually know the full story and not just part of it. You ever walked into a conversation or you walked up to a group of people when someone was telling a joke and you walked up right at the punchline and they tell the punchline and everybody starts laughing and you just start laughing too because you don't want to look silly but you really have no idea what happened? That's what happens when we take a verse and we say, oh God, give me the peace that goes against understanding. Well, actually you missed a part. Romans eight twenty eight is another one where we can actually get peace from knowing. This is, this is easily one of my top three verses in all the Bible. It is so powerful and so good and so reassuring to me. And, we, and we, I, you could probably recite it without me even reading it, but we're gonna read it anyway. Romans eight twenty eight. it says, and we know, here we go again about knowing. We know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. We know. We, to know, you have to know. To know, you have to know him. We know that in all things God works for good. This is another one that you can just say, oh, praise God. That's the only verse you see when you see it on a plaque or on a, a frame hanging on a wall somewhere. That's, they don't do the other verses around this, but what you need to understand here is that they were in captivity in Babylon when this was given. Right? No, I'm sorry. I gave you the wrong reference. Never mind. That did not happen there. But Paul was going through some suffering at this time, and he was saying that in all things, all things, God works for the good for those who love him. And you can't really know his goodness unless you know him. And what that means to me, this verse, church, is so good, because what this means to me is that God is always working in our situation. There's always a purpose to anything that we're going through in our life. And listen, if you can't see that he's doing something, he's still doing something. And if he's not doing something, he's not doing something on purpose. He's always working. He's always in every one of our situations. He is never not involved in the things that we're involved in. But you can't know that unless you really know him. And in fact, sometimes that doesn't even bring hope to people if they don't really know the God that we're serving. And it doesn't have to be something that we can see. You know, Paul says here, he says, in all things we know. He didn't say in all things we see that you're working the good. Sometimes you can't see the good. Sometimes you're not gonna see it in your situation in the time that you want to see it, but he is always, always working in it. We cannot understand an eternal God with this finite mind. We can't just understand him through the, through the 
the perspective that we have in our life, but we can trust him if we know him. I don't know about you, but I like predictability and comfort in my life. It's in my nature to really like to be comfortable and to have life that's predictable. If I should ask for a show of hands, probably every hand would go up if we were honest. There's something about predictability in life that's just, it feels good, doesn't it? And comfort. We work very hard to, to bring comfort into our life and to have that comfort in our life. And that's okay. And it's in our nature to want that. Unfortunately, too oftentimes, our nature to want that also translates to our faith as well. And I, I fear that oftentimes we are willing, I'll personalize it, I am sometimes willing to sacrifice knowing for comfort. I'm willing to do that sometimes, if I'm honest. Because comfort is so important. Predictability is so important. And the thing about really knowing Jesus and really serving Jesus, the predictability and the comfort a lot of times are in the back of the bus. They're not up front. And we can easily forego and say, you know what, I'm okay to not be able to speak like Paul in a prison cell and say, for I know, as long as I'm comfortable. The problem is the comfort doesn't stay. It's, it's fleeting. It's temporal. And so when we, if, we, if we sacrifice knowing for all that, then when the time comes that the comfort is gone, then we don't know. And then we're in trouble. And then we have to, we're, we're working, from, we're, we're trying to catch up. We're playing catch up. We're working from behind because we've been so willing to sacrifice knowing for the comfort. And I think some of us need to hear this today. That we are, we don't know like Paul. We don't know like Job or like Jesus or like Peter or like King David. We don't know like they do. And we can't say what they would say in the word and we say it with a clear conscience because we're too okay with the status quo in our life. God has not called us to the status quo. He's called us to be radical for him. He's, Jesus says, if you're gonna come after me, you gotta take up your cross and follow me. You gotta give up your life to, to find life. Anyone who wants to keep his life loses it. I mean, just goes on and on and on. The, the, the real disciple of Jesus, a real follower of Jesus, a real person that would say, I am a Christian, is about giving up your life for him and be willing to say, whatever it takes, Lord, I wanna know you. I wanna know you more in my life. I don't wanna let the things of this world hold me down. I don't want to put my faith in my wealth. I don't want to put my faith in my education. I don't want to put my faith in my brains. I don't want to put my faith in the stuff I have or in my, my family or my relationships or my friendships. I don't want to put my faith in any of those things. I want my faith to be in you. And to do that, you have to get uncomfortable. To do that, you cannot make comfort and predictability the highest priority in your life. And it's just like anything else. The roof of your faith will look good as long as the sun is shining. But when it rains, you're gonna be in all kinds of trouble because that is not God's plan for any of us. He doesn't just want us to want the rain to stop. Don't just pray for the sunshine, church. Don't just pray for the sun because it doesn't reveal much. It's a break for us, it's a nice break. But don't pray for the sun, pray for the leaks in the roof to be fixed. That's what we pray for and trust God in all of it, amen? Would you stand with me please as we close today? I wanna pray for us this afternoon. And I wanna invite you to just respond. You can respond at your seat or you can come up front if you want, either way. But I encourage you to respond today and receive this, this prayer that we would wanna see God 
that we would want to know him as many that have gone before us have known him. It is for all of us, church. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you'd say, he's not my Lord, he's not my Savior. I've never given my life to him. I am beyond glad that you are here today or that you're watching online because that's, I believe that's why God brought you here is to show you his love, to show you your need for him. The Bible is very clear that we are all born sinners, that none of us is good enough to make it to heaven on our own. None of us is good enough to have a relationship with God on our own. The only way to do that is to come before him and lay our sins before him and say, God, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. And he promises us that when we give him our life, he forgives us and he comes and resides in our heart. The Bible says he literally lives inside of us. His spirit lives in us. That's why as Christians, we talk all the time about Jesus being in our heart and overflowing, being filled with the spirit of God, because that's what the Bible tells us he does. And he does that. He comes in, he changes you and he starts to make you more like him. You get the mind of Christ when you become a follower of Jesus. He puts your name in his book and it's in there. And so that when you do leave this life, you get to go and be with him, not eternally separated from him. So don't, don't leave today without making that decision if that's you. And if you're here today and you're a, say, I love Jesus, but I can't in a good conscience say like Paul did, for I know. I mean, I can say it on a sunny day, but when the rain comes, I really wonder. It doesn't have to be that way, church. We grow, as we grow in our faith, we grow in the knowledge of who he is. We grow in understanding his character. We grow in understanding how little we are and how great he is and how much he loves us. We can go through situations trusting him and knowing that he is who he says he is. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do love you today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your incredible presence in this place, Lord. We love you so much. Lord, I thank you that you love us. Thank you for not just saying you love us, but for demonstrating it for, by coming and dying for our sins. We thank you for it today, Lord. God, I pray that each one of us today would make a decision that we would commit to knowing you as Paul knowed you, to be able to say, for I know, to be persuaded that you are worthy of our trust, that, that everything we've entrusted to you, Lord, that you're worthy of it, that we would be completely convinced, God, not 100% assured, but that we'd be convinced to the point that we'd be willing to die for you just like the disciples did, just like Paul did, even though our lives will probably never be asked of us as a Christian. But Lord, that, that would not be a, a hindrance either that we would know that we would give ourselves to you completely because you deserve it. You're worthy of it, Lord. We honor you today, Lord Jesus. We worship you, Lord. Lord, show us where we have trusted in ourselves. Show us where we have trusted in our wealth and in our relationships and our education and other things, Lord. And God, help us. Bring us to that place, Lord. Whatever it takes, Lord, if rain needs to come so that we can know where we need you more, God, let it come because we know we can trust you in it. Thank you, Lord. We thank you, Jesus. We love you, we honor you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise God. Yes, let's praise God one more time. Thank you, Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank the Lord.